Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Food Frustrations Eat Fad-Free teleseminar and webinar with John Deyard. Tonight, Dr. John will be discussing the ins and outs of cleansing and how you can design the perfect cleanse for yourself this spring. A few notes on how to interact on this call. To type in questions, if you're watching online, click on the link provided in the email reminder for this call. Another way to access the question submissions box is to go to lifespa.com and click on the very first post on that page. Um, it's the viewing page for this call, and it's called Food Frustrations Eat Fad Free. Uh, here you'll be able to submit questions in the gray box or just watch the webinar live. This will also be the page where the replays can be found after the call. Please do not type in questions on our YouTube page because we won't see them. So uh, just again, you can, watch, you can watch the webinar and not just listen to this on the phone. Um, to ask questions verbally, you need to be listening on your phone. Um, so please call, if you want to do that, please call 425-440-5100. You'll be prompted to enter a PIN, and that number is 124337-POUND. Um, then to raise your hand, please press star 2, and we'll see you in queue and call on you. If Dr. John does call on you, he's going to address you by um, your last name and the city and state that your phone is listed under, so please make a mental note right now of what that could be, and, um, and he'll call on that. The recording of this call and this webinar will be available tomorrow, um, so you can check us out here if you can't make, if you couldn't make the whole thing, um, and, and definitely join us for our upcoming teleseminars, which are um, on April 7th. We have a great teleseminar on our Colorado Cleanse. It's a, um, a whole Q&A session called How Can You Benefit from the Colorado Cleanse? And that's on Monday, April 7th at 5.30, Mountain Standard Time. And um, another call, Longevity, ex Longevity Exercise Less is More, is on Wednesday, May 7th at 5.30. You can sign up for any of these teleseminars on our website, lifespa.com, under the Education button, and then under events, and uh, select live teleseminars. All right, thanks everybody. Enjoy, and here's John Diard. having technical difficulties. Hold on just one minute and we'll get this running again.
Okay, great. <clears throat> Thank you all. Thank you, everybody, for waiting. Uh, welcome to our fad-free lecture. I love that title, right? How do you eat fad-free? Are we sort of done with fads? I sure hope so. But they just keep coming, you know. Um, so let's talk about fads, right? What are What is a, a fad diet? Well, <clears throat> uh, we sure, you know, didn't start out with eating fad-free. We started out trying to just store enough fat to survive and not die, basically. That's how we got here. Ancient humans, basically, were designed. We are designed to store fat. That's what we're designed to do. If we get any extra, we're going to store some fat, get some insulation so we don't freeze to death, and that was our survival. So we spent two million years really trying to figure out how to store fat. And in the last 50, we figured it out. Now we know how to store fat. We have extra fuel that we can't use, so we store it as fat. And that's and along the way, in the last 50 years, we figured out a way to sort of how do something other, like a fad diet, to kind of unravel that. But it's really two million years in the making. I don't think we're going to unravel it with a fad diet, that's for sure. 10,000 years ago, something really terrible happened. The uh, I think it was in the Philippines, I'm pretty sure, yeah, they figured out a way to kind of cultivate sugar and grow sugar cane on a regular basis as a crop because they all were attracted to it. Shortly thereafter, in India, they figured out how to make the white powder. And that white powder took over the world. It literally took over the world. It was what you can pretty much, you know, um, blame all of slavery on it. Wars broke out. It was a medicine, a cure-all, a panacea. It was the thing. Everybody... In, in Europe would do anything for putting that white teaspoon of sugar in their tea, all of which was from India, by the way. So not Ayurvedic, I must say, but definitely from India. So that sort of created this crazy, ex insane desire for sweet. Now, for millions of years prior, we got satisfied with fat, not sugar. There's two major sources of fuel, sugar and fat. That's how it works. Proteins we can make into energy, but it's a long, slow process, not very efficient. So we have sugar and fat. So for the last uh, two million years, we've been satisfied on fat. And I've talked about this in the past where ancient humans, the sweetest thing on the planet was about as sweet as a carrot. So they were either very depressed because they didn't have dark chocolate and they walked around starving all the time, or, which I think is maybe the case, they were satisfied by eating a lot of fat. Now, I hate to be gross here, but if you are hunting and gathering, really it was more like hunting and digging. There wasn't a lot of gathering going on. It was more like digging up stuff. But the hunting part was, and when they did hunt, I don't think they were fantastic hunters. They didn't eat meat every day, like for dinner. They, had, they hunted, and they would eat the stuff that would go bad first, like the organ meats and the brains and all the stuff where all the fat-soluble vitamins were. We don't do that. But somehow that allowed them to be satisfied. So they didn't crave dark chocolate, which was great for them. So they were happy, I guess. We don't really know that, but we're assuming that they weren't miserable. Um, but along the way, after we invented this thing called white sugar, it started to create this addiction to that taste. Now, we are hardwired to love the taste of sweet because if we didn't, mother's milk was sweet. So that was like, aha, that's good. That doesn't kill me. I'm going to eat that. 
So we are hardwired genetically to like the sweet taste. It was part of our survival. Anything sweet in nature was good for you. So we wanted more and more of it. And we craved more of it. So we could get fruit at the end of the summer to, to gorge on it. And there was a lot of animals trying to do that, by the way. And store extra fat. Well, that was a really great thing. It helped you survive. So here we go again. We're hardwired to love sugar, and we do. And we have a diet that genetically, that we are genetically wired to basically handle fat, which we don't. Because we were told for the last 50 years that fat is bad for you. And therefore, you shouldn't eat fat. And that actually was a little mistake, a minor mistake. It's not that fat is necessarily good for us or bad for us. It was more the kinds of fats that we were getting because fat, one photon of light on any fatty substance or oil will make the whole thing go bad and go rancid. So the stuff was not stable. That's the problem. So here's the best way to eliminate the fat-free thing, right? That is, number one, if it sits around and doesn't go bad, it's a fad. It's bad. It's not good. You know, if you look in your refrigerator, look at all this stuff way in the back that's been there for, do we even want to stay, like, you know, months? Are we going on years for some of this stuff? I mean, this is insane what we do. We eat things out of the refrigerator that have been sitting there for months and months and months and months. That is a real deal breaker when it comes to being able to digest it. The bottom line is that we've talked about this too. 90% of your cells in your body are bugs, right? 10% of the cells in your body are human. So we eat, survive, think, breathe to keep the bugs alive. That's why we do it. And if the bugs won't eat the food in the refrigerator, then you shouldn't either. That's the bottom line. If a loaf of bread sits on your counter for a month, without going bad, the bugs won't eat it, you shouldn't eat it either, okay? If a carton of milk sits in your refrigerator for a weeks and weeks or rice stream for months and months in these containers that somehow look cooler and healthier and doesn't go bad, like who, the bugs aren't eating that, so therefore you shouldn't because you're 90% bug, right? So it's really that simple. You want to cut to the chase here. If it sits around, probably not good for it. But what we did in the last 50 years, we processed everything. We processed the oils. They're deodorized. They're bleached. They're, they're, um, they are boiled to get rid of any possible thing in, in these oils that could go bad. So you take your best organic whole wheat bread and you look at the label and the label says, and the label says that it basically um, <clears throat> there's a bunch of cooked oils in them. This is the second thing. If there are any oils that are cooked, breads have cooked oils. Potato chips have cooked oils. These things that have oils that are cooked on them. Um, let me see here. Oh, okay. So um, I got a little note. So. Anything that has cooked oils on them, um, in them, like breads or potato chips, they have gone rancid, so they're not necessarily good for you. So you got to be thinking, you know, if I'm going to be eating a lot of foods that have cooked oils, my liver cannot digest them. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like having uh, grease on your stove and your oven 
for years and years, every time you fry your eggs and all that splatter goes on your, your stove and layers and layers and layers, grease on your stove and you never clean it, that's what, you're, what happens to your liver. Your liver just takes all this undigestible fat that's been processed that can't be digested, the bugs won't eat it, and it just sits there in layers and layers and layers in your liver, and your liver becomes congested, right? And your liver really can't handle being congested because inside your liver there's stuff called bile, and bile is a Pac-Man, and the Pac-Man of bile, it emulsifies fats the best it can, yeah, even the yucky stuff, but it gets overwhelmed. And if you don't have enough fat in your diet, then you don't have you won't have enough bile. The body was designed to handle long periods of time without fat, and the bile um, was designed to be able to be reused 17 times before it finally got discarded. So here's how it works: you have bile in your liver, it packs a bunch of yucky cholesterol, toxins, chemicals, fat-soluble stuff, right? Eat some fatty food, whoa, all that bile's in your intestinal tract. And it's packmaning yuck off your uh, off your um, your intestinal wall and cleaning your villi and scrubbing parasites, doing lots of really wonderful things. Ninety-four percent of that bile gets reabsorbed back to your liver. If you don't have enough fat in your diet, then that bile will be reused back into your intestinal tract, back into your liver, back into your intestinal tract, back into your liver 17 times. That's like washing your dishes 17 days in a row with the same water before you get new water, before you get new fresh water. That's how bad it is. Okay. So now, when you compare ancient versus modern humans, there's two things that jump off the page, and uh, and it's not how much carbohydrates they ate or how much protein they ate. That is about the same. Now, no doubt the carbs that they ate were the digging carbs. They were digging up roots and vegetables and things like that. They were so they were digging up these these tubers and things that had lots of carbohydrates. And their proteins, as we can imagine, were probably when they got lucky and they hunted something and they ate it. But the fiber that they ate was five times as much as we do today. And that's based on some of the best current research in anthropology, which is that they had 100 grams of fiber per day. We get 20, 25 if we're lucky. Fiber attaches to the bile in your intestinal tract and takes all the bile to the toilet with all the toxins in tow. How cool is that? But if you don't have enough fiber, which we don't do, 94% of that bile goes back to your liver, into your liver, and the liver goes, I just dumped that stuff out of here. And why is it back? So the liver goes, I'm way too busy, can't handle this, and it pushes it into the blood. Now you have these toxic chemicals and toxic cholesterols circulating in your blood, in your arteries, to your heart, you know, into your cells, and we store whatever we can along the way. That's why it's so important to get a good amount of good fats in your diet and a, um, a good amount of good fiber. So that's sort of the other way to avoid this whole fat-free thing. Get more fats and get more fiber. Problem with that. If I just say, everybody go out and just get some coconut oil and butter and ghee and drink a lot of and olive oil and eat a bunch of fat, um, you're probably all going to get fat and you scream at me and yell at me because that's what I told you to do. But I'm going to tell you to do that if you do two other things. There's two sources of fuel. If you have lots of carbohydrates and lots of fat, you're going to overshoot your energy runway and you're going to store extra, bottom line, right? So if you're going to increase your fat, you've got to decrease your carbohydrates. That's just the way it works. 
So that's one thing. And hunter-gatherers did a lot of moving around. They didn't sit in front of a desk all day long. They were very active, 5 to 10 to 15 kilometers per day, depending on who you read. It's a lot of movement. So if you're going to eat more fat, you got to burn it. So you got to move your body. Okay, so we're going to start off a little slow, but the goal is that you exercise every day, you reduce your processed foods, your, your processed carbohydrates, and we increase some good fats, and then you get satisfied. Your brain's like, whoa, I just got satisfied from good fat. I'm not thinking about dark chocolate. I'm not thinking about craving and looking for more food. That is our problem. Sugar, which we are addicted to, and carbohydrates, they burn quick and they burn slow. They have a very high glycemic index. And boy, and they're, and, and, they're, and so many of these, these sweets are hidden. Like the glycemic index of white table sugar, the nemesis of the last 10,000 years, have really caused much of our disease in this culture, really. It has a glycemic index of a 59, which is how quickly it gets from your intestinal tract into your blood as sugar, energy. Boom. A piece of whole wheat bread or a croissant, for example, has a glycemic index of 77. A white a piece of bread, whole wheat bread, might have a glycemic index of 73 or 4. White table sugar is a 59. Like, who knew that, right? That when you're eating a sandwich, which you think is good for you, you're getting an explosion of sugar in your blood, which your body is not genetically wired to handle. We're not wired to handle those types of explosions. It's critically important that we, that we learn how to stabilize our blood sugar and, in fact, be a good fat burner, okay? That's the key. We've lost our ability. Why? Well, we don't burn good fats to burn. So how are we supposed to burn them? So that's a big piece of the puzzle. And there are many ways, and I don't know if I'm going to get to all the ways tonight about how to talk to you about how to be a good fat burner. But in brief, eating three meals a day, not snacking are really important. Relaxing when you eat your food. Exercising from a calm perspective. My first book, Body, Mind, Sport, is all about breathing through your nose when you exercise so you create a calm effect when you're exercising versus a <laughs> stressed out effect <clears throat> which tells your body, there's a bear chasing me. Store as much fat as you can. Burn as much sugar as you can to get out of this mess here and save my life. Well, if you're on the treadmill or the stair stepper and that's how you're exercising, then that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to store fat and crave sugar, and that's exactly why most folks don't lose a whole lot of weight when they exercise. They don't burn fat. In fact, if you go on a three-mile jog, you're probably going to burn about 300 calories. It's not a lot of calories. That's about the amount of a, of a bowl of soup and a small salad. You know, that's how much I just worked out and ran three miles, and I burned off a small bowl of soup and a salad. I think I'd rather sit home and watch the news. I mean, it's not really delivering those benefits. So exercise has to be done from a calm place. The more calm you are, the more uh, fat you burn. Now, there's a lot more to be said about exercise, so please don't, don't think that's all there is. There is a time and a place for, for what I call fast-twitch activation. We write about that in our 12-minute in our workout, which I invite you to look at, which is very, very important. But I want to take this minute a minute and sort of move on to this whole idea of fad diets, where it all started, how did it all happen, at least in modern times. It may be 30, 40 years ago, maybe now, the Atkins uh, came out with his first high-protein diet. 
and it was the cottage cheese and hamburger diet. If you ate as much cottage cheese, as many hamburgers as you wanted, you'd lose weight. You eat a significant amount of fat and a fat amount of proteins. It was the first high-protein diet. Um, and we've seen so many derivations of that. And so everybody in America was eating hamburgers and cottage cheese, and they were losing weight because if you don't have any carbohydrates in your diet, which is what that diet was all about, you have to get fuel from somewhere. So you get it from your fat or your carbs. But if there are no carbs, you're going to get it from your fat. So having a high-protein, high-fat diet makes you lose weight because you burn your fat. That's how it works. And the mice at MIT, when they did studies on this, at the end of that, were really sick of this diet. I think they, they gave them a questionnaire. And they found out that these mice, when they gave them carbohydrates, they were, they were binging on the carbohydrates. They just couldn't stop eating them. And they gained all their weight back. And they, at that point, they got little... They had little tiny spinners for them because they were like super high-tech little mice. They were high-performance little mice athletes. And they got rid of the big spinners. And anyway, it was bad. They mice, they gorged on all the carbohydrates. They got really fat. They couldn't fit in the spinners. It was bad. So anyway, that's exactly what happened. In about 30 years ago, the Pritikin diet, which was a diet that said you can eat 80% carbohydrates and you can lose weight, feel good have mood stability, all those wonderful things that you want. You're going to get that. You're going to get that if you eat 80% carbohydrates. What just happened to be that America was was basically craving carbohydrates because they've been eating 80% protein and fat for the last five years. All these diets last about five years. And people get sick of that and they start craving whatever they were taken, whatever was taken away. So every diet basically provided the antidote or relief for what the previous diet left you craving. So America said, you can, are you kidding me? I can eat 80% carbohydrates, off we go. America was binging on carbs, on carbs. Now, Pritikin was all about complex carbs and dense carbs and really good sugars and things like that. He wasn't about processed carbs, but about that time, everything started getting processed. There was McDonald's came on the scene, things were becoming processed, oils were, things were sitting around on shelves a lot longer than they should. They were undigestible carbohydrates and high glycemic index carbs that went up and went down and went up and went down and left you with energy and then left you without energy. Most of America that, of course, loves carbs and desserts are on there, when you eat something sweet, your energy goes up and you're on the way to feeling good and your body knows that chemically. Your brain knows that dopamine is coming, I'm feeling great, it's on the way. Then when you get there, you're feeling good for like about a minute, maybe 10 minutes. And then you're on the way to feeling bad because that's what sugar does, never really lasts. Then you're like, oh man, I feel really low. Then you're on the way to feeling good again because you crave something or you eat something sweet like some dark chocolate. So we are, our culture has been on the way to feeling good and on the way to feeling bad, on the way to feeling good and on the way to feeling bad for the last 20, 30, 40 years. And that creates stress. Every time you dip down, the body goes, this is an emergency store fat. Matter of fact, that stress um, causes, is, is, a, is produced by a chemical called cortisol and insulin. And our belly fat is four times as sensitive to insulin and cortisol, then putting fat like on my forearm or something like that. It's four times as sensitive. So that's why we store all the fat around our belly, because it comes from the high-low experience. So that's not really sustainable either. And we're craving it because we don't have our genetic food, which is good quality fats. That's what we lack. So we got to sort of make a 
make a track to get there. Um, there was a study, uh, or uh, someone had asked me a question here, and I have some questions here I want to answer along the way here. That, um, uh, and one of the questions that we printed out before we came was about uh, a book, uh, David Perlmutter's book. David's a good friend of mine called Grain Brain, and it's a great book. Uh, and it's really all about, you know, well, it's about how grains like gluten are terrible for your brain. We now know we have what is it the the, the belly. What is it? Wheat belly. The other book. Really taking wheat and just crushing it and saying how bad this terrible, terrible thing is. I'm not a fan of that part of the grain brain book. I'm a fan of the fact that that book is all about more fats and how we are genetically wired to handle fats. Our brain, anthropologically speaking, tripled in size because of the amount of fats that um, we ate when we became hunter-gatherers as opposed to being chimpanzees running around in the, in, the, uh, in the rainforest trying to find more food. And, of course, the rainforests were shrinking with the Ice Age, and we had to wander and migrate out to areas where there was no, it wasn't a rainforest, food wasn't hanging off of trees like fruits, and we had to figure out another way to survive. And that, triggered, that was triggered by fat, and that fat tripled our brain size. These, these fats are called brain-derived neurotrophic factors. They make our brain bigger, smarter, and we did. It was a great thing. We do need those fats. Thus, all the research on fish oils is so compelling. You can't ignore that research. It's, you know, it's so important for us to get those good fats. Now we have to figure out a way to weave it into our diet. So, let's, um, so what happened with this whole kind of... Uh, yo-yo thing. And I write about this in my three-season diet book about how we really have screwed up with this kind of uh, this fad diet. Because what happened with Pritikin was we were all now craving carbohydrates. And complex carbohydrates became, carbohydrates became simple carbs. And people were now binging on simple carbs, having the ups and the downs and the ups and the downs. And for the first time, we had hypoglycemic issues. People were crashing and burning. People were having a, you know, you know, uh, you know, a cup of coffee for breakfast, and boom, they go up, and then they crash again. They have a donut for at 10 o'clock, and boom, they go up, and then they crash and have a salad in front of their computer because, of course, trying to lose weight, and boom, and with a Diet Coke, of course, boom, and that goes up, and then crashes, and you're feeling a little exhausted on your at your desk, so you everybody passes chocolate around the office at three o'clock to get you back up, and then you crash again, and you need a cup of coffee to drive home, otherwise you're going to crash and burn. This is what's happened, and that created a lot of stress, and that stress causes two things. Hypoglycemia, the first window of unstable blood sugar, which is our big epidemic today, and but we're talking 20, 30 years ago, the first impact of that was high cholesterol, which they had never seen before. And the cholesterol levels became high because of stress. The stress oxidized the good cholesterols into bad. We were eating bad fats. There was no fats available to make good bile. We weren't having any fiber because we were eating processed foods. There was no fiber to take the bile out of the intestinal tract. So there was no, we were using that same bile 17 times until it just got worn out. It wasn't doing its job well. We started storing fat and we got fat. Simple as that. That's how it works. So, and then we said, well, here's a great idea. Why don't we just eat little meals all day long and the butcher won't be so high and so low? And we're still doing versions of that with the whole six meal a day thing, which is, don't even get me started. That 
has no validity, really, historically, genetically. We're wired to make energy last. A, re- a study I was reading not too long ago said that when we starve, our cells, not only do they survive, they thrive. We, our cells live longer, and they produce more energy when we don't have food. Scary, right? So we eat too much, bottom line. That's really the name of this game. But you're going to want food if you don't have fats because fats satisfy you. So if you're eating you know, nutrient-lacking foods and you're not getting the nutrition that you need, your brain's not getting fed with good fats, you're always going to feel hungry for dessert, always going to feel hungry for that, for more. So that is sort of what happened. We have this fad diets now that are all about trying to put out that fire, where blood sugars were high and low. We had high cholesterol, so cholesterol all of a sudden was bad. Everybody became vegetarians, right? Then blood sugars were still unstable, so now we had grazing, eat little meals all day long. So so that didn't work either. So then they said, well, why don't we just get rid of carbohydrates altogether and go back where we started from 50 years ago when Atkins first introduced the hamburger and cottage cheese diet. That would work, right? Well, that's where we are now. We have paleo and low-carb diets. It's the same thing. we got to wake up. We're not stupid. We're being told the same thing with a different cover, with a different best-selling author every single time. It's insanity. Sanity. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. we got to start, start thinking for ourselves. And for me, for me, I think the most logical thing is nature. You look out your window, and there's stuff growing. And it hasn't failed us, ever. It continues. We screw it up. We try to do as much as we can to screw it up, genetically modify, harvest, hybridize. Yeah, but it's still doing its thing. It's still kicking. And, and I think the thing that we have to realize is that Ayurveda is a study of life, a study of nature. So I want to talk to you now about how um, Ayurveda... Um, how Ayurveda works. It's a science of life. How nature made sure it set us perfectly. Before I do that, though, I want to take a couple of questions because I know that uh, this time goes by so fast. So there was a couple of questions here that I got printed out, and then I'll see if I can find some more, and we'll get some people on the phone here, too. Is there a way to regenerate your cartilage with diet and nutrition? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, Cartilage is a is a substance like your fingernail. It's a cartilage. It has no blood supply. So if you tear your cartilage, you're screwed. Um, but um, I'm just kidding. But if you if you tear your cartilage in your knee, and the muscles around the knee are clamping down on your joint, then it's going to irritate and possibly tear the cartilage. Forty percent of folks who have torn cartilage don't even know they have it. So that causes a tear. So you can't fix the, the broken fingernail or the cartilage, but you can fix the muscles around it to give you some slack and some lubrication and some blood. And that you can do with diet and yoga and exercise. You can do that for sure. So you can't prepare your cartilage, but you can definitely uh, fix the soft tissue around it, which is the key and a very critical thing. Uh, I'd like to know more about emotional eating, cravings, and addictions. And... Um, and uh, you know, I think we touched on that, I think, already, you know, that when you don't have enough fat, you're going to be an emotional eater. You're going to be addicted. You're going to be addicted to whatever. That. We're going to be addicted as a culture to all kinds of crazy things, shopping, uh, new cars, you know, the newest shoes or buying more shoes or eating dark chocolate or coffee. These are all stimulants that give us the illusion of satisfaction. 
And that goes away when you burn the kind of fuel that we were designed to burn, which isn't just all fat. It's a combination of fat and carbohydrates, just to make sure that we're clear on that. Um, um, okay, um, one comment is that uh, what's wrong with dairy? People, you like to know about dairy products and why they should be avoided. Um, so I'm taking some of these questions and abbreviating them in the name of time. Um, dairy isn't bad. Wheat isn't bad. We're not going to get too sidetracked on those issues. They're just hard to digest proteins, okay? So that's really important. Hard to digest proteins like wheat, dairy, soy, corn, all these things are allergenic foods that we don't do well with them. Wheat and dairy are hard to digest proteins. If you eat them, you have lousy digestion, you're going to irritate your gut, cause inflammation, make you feel bloated and tired, and you're going to blame it on the wheat and the dairy. Dairy is significantly processed food, and I've written a lot about that. I wrote an article on something called Don't Drink Dairy Till You Read This or something, and I talk all about dairy. But dairy should be non-processed, non-homogenized. If you're going to pasteurize it, it should be VAT, V-A-T, pasteurized, which means that, which means that it's been heated only to 135 degrees and it goes bad in three days. That's milk, okay? Uh, wheat, you know, is, uh, again, somewhat hybridized. The grain has become a higher glycemic index. I get it. But we eat it every day of the year. And it's only supposed to be harvested in the fall for winter eating. You know, and, and it's the process, the wheat with the cooked oils that are bad for you. If you get an Ezekiel bread, that's a bread that goes bad if you don't refrigerate it, it basically um, has wheat and water and salt in it. If you get my favorite crackers are these Kavli crackers, little thin Swedish crackers, and the ingredients are rye, salt, and water. That's it. There's nothing else in it. That is a digestible source of wheat. You can digest that. But it's when you add the wheat with the cooked oils and all the additives and all the preservatives that it sits on your shelf forever, that's an undigestible form. Plus, you must have good digestion. Your digestive fire is all about breaking down hard-to-digest proteins. And I've talked a lot about that. We have our big Colorado cleanse coming up in a couple of weeks at the end of April. It's all about turning your digestive fire back on so you can digest hard-to-digest foods again. So you're not walking, not, not eating certain foods. Because here's the problem. If you think that I can just not eat wheat and not eat dairy and be healthy, I'm sorry to say, but that's not accurate. You don't ever have to eat wheat and dairy again the rest of your life to be healthy. That's not a requirement. But when you don't eat wheat and dairy because it makes you feel yucky and it's caused by an underlying weakness in your digestifier to break down those proteins, then that means your digestifier is not as, it's not as strong as it should or could be. Toxic chemicals like the mercury on the organic spinach that covers all of, uh, of America from the coal mine plumes is on your organic foods. You don't have the digestive strength to digest wheat and dairy. How are you going to digest the mercury on the spinach? That's organic. You see, being a good digester is being a good detoxifier, and that's why it's so critically important to be a really good digester. And that's really why I created the Colorado Cleanse, was to help first folks reset digestive strength first and then do the detox. And that's why it's so critically important. So it's not that those are bad foods. There's definitely ways to get them without the processing of them. Okay. A couple of more things. Now we're going to go into the, uh, the diets of nature. 
This time of year, it's spring right now. The deer are digging up bitter roots, and the bitter roots are loaded with alkalis, like dandelion and burdock root and Oregon grape and golden seal. They're rhizomes. They're the surface roots of plants. And the deer, and we used to, historically, dig them up. Remember, we were hunter-diggers. And we would dig up those roots, and we would basically... Um, we would dig up those roots and we would basically eat them. And those roots would scrub and clean our villi and get the villi all cleaned out, which was just wonderful. And that's what happens every spring. At the end of the winter, it's very dry. To the extent that we got dry in the winter is to the extent that we make reactive mucus in the spring in our sinuses and in our intestinal tract. And that reactive mucus is a breeding ground for bugs, colds, flus, bacteria, undesirable yeasts, yucky stuff. And it doesn't allow our good microbiology to flourish. It's not good. So the, the bitter roots would go in there, the dandelion root tea, that was, the, that was what we would use to clean out those villi. Then the grounds would, would and they're starting to happen here in Colorado already, which is long overdue, it feels like, and I think all of us feel that way. This, this has been a hard winter. The greens become fluorescent. The, the, the valleys become fluorescent. And these spring greens are loaded with chlorophyll-rich nutrients that fertilize the good bacteria. Every plant out there attracts bugs. Organic foods are loaded with bugs, I hate to say it. Conventional foods don't have nearly as many bugs. When we have herbs, like our Life Spa herbal line is all whole plants ground up, not extracts, because when you extract a plant, you kill all the bugs, which are 90% of you, which do the heavy lifting for everything. So it doesn't make sense to lose that benefit to gain a concentrated herbal chemical. I would rather keep the plant intact and take that internally. Lots of benefits for why that is. But again, it's just about the bugs. It's about getting more bugs in your system. So every spring, there's a whole army of bugs on these plants in these leafy greens. But we scrub them and power wash them and clean them and boil them and kill all the bugs. It's important that we stop killing all the bugs. Uh, the, the researchers that came up with, did the original research on, on the microbiome and that we're 90% bugs, they were asked, if you were to do anything now that, you, now that you know about bugs and how important they are and all that, what would you do? And they said, well, we are at the kindergarten level understanding microbiology, but one thing that I know we would do for sure is I wouldn't wash my hands as much. I wouldn't clean my kids up so much. I'd let them roll in the dirt a little bit more. I wouldn't let the dirt be this terrible, terrible thing. Dirt is good stuff. And it's hard to believe, but so we don't have to, you know, we can get the dirt off of our food. We don't have to be so over, you know, clean about cleaning every little thing. That's important. So in the spring, nature cleans the villi with the bitter roots. It fertilizes them, the villi, with uh, greens and leafy greens. And then towards the end of the spring, we start to see berries and the last uh, sort of berry of spring is a cherry, sort of half fruit, half berry. Not sure who it wants to be, but it has the benefits and the medicinal properties of a berry, but it looks and acts like a cherry or like a fruit. But it has the paranthocidins and the antioxidants and the lymphatic movers 
that all the red stuff has, all the, the berries have. So in nature, berries and things that dye your skin red or blue or black, those berries, those things, they are really wonderful for moving your lymphatic system. On the outside of your gut wall is what's called the gut-associated lymphatic tissue, where 80% of your lymphatic system lives. Uh, 80% of your immune system lives. That is where our immune system resides, on the outside of your gut wall, in case any weird thing would penetrate my intestinal tract, get into my lymph, and start to cause problems in my bloodstream. So the, the, there's white blood cells out there waiting to pounce on any weird stuff that gets through my skin. I have the same lymph underneath my skin here. It's called skin-associated lymph. So if I get bit by a mosquito, I have a little army of white blood cells within my lymphatic system waiting to pounce if some little infection tried to happen. And that's why it turns red, because I'm fighting this little battle here. So that's your lymphatic system. The berries and the cherries flush and cleanse your lymphatic system. So how cool is that, right? So in nature, you have every, after a long winter for drying out and producing a reactive mucus, because your intestinal tract is mucous membranes, so they produce a bunch of mucus, and they bog down the villi, and bugs start to proliferate. They shouldn't be there. It's not great at the end of the winter. So nature gives you spring to clean with the bitter roots, fertilize with the greens, and clean the lymph on the outside of the gut wall with the berries and cherries. So that's the one, two, three punch of nature every spring. Then comes summer. Summer is the time where it gets hot, right? Now, if you don't get rid of all that uh, hardened, that mucus from winter and the mucus of spring, because if you don't do anything I just said, spring is a rainy, muddy, heavy, mucus-producing allergy season. So if you don't do anything, you just layer more mucus in your gut. You get allergies, asthma, breathing problems, colds. It's yucky. And God forbid you're eating mac and cheese and pizza, Right? Or if you get feed your kids mac and cheese and pizza and you wonder why they have a bunch of asthma and mucus in the spring and allergies in the spring, well, it's because kids are mucus-making. That's what they do for a living. And they're eating mucus-making foods in a mucus-making season of the springtime. And that's what kids do is make mucus because they're small. And they have to grow. They have to stretch. <laughs> and if they don't, they dry out. So nature made sure that the spring is a mucus-making time. And it made sure that nature provided the antidote for any extra. That's the beauty of nature. So come summertime, that heat of summer, if you don't get rid of the mucus in the spring, will literally bake the mucus onto your intestinal wall, onto the villi, creating hardened mucoid material that compromises the effectiveness of the absorption and the detoxification and the assimilation of your nutrition. Most importantly, your ability to absorb fat, which moves through what are called lacteals in your intestinal tract. There's the villi, and then there's the little lacteals, which are for the fat, to give your brain satisfaction. And if that gets yucky, stuck in traffic and congested, you're never going to be satisfied. So you got to eat a ton of pasta to feel satisfied. So America became the supersized portions of food. The amount of food that we eat in America is because 
We need it to feel satisfied because our gut is so yucky, we can't assimilate foods very, very well. It's inefficient, so we have to overeat, overshoot that runway to get satisfied, as opposed to having good, healthy villi that can absorb medium, minor, smaller amounts of food and be satisfied with less. And most of that comes from the ability to deliver good fats. And remember, we've been, we haven't eaten good fats in years. And that's a problem. And I think we're making a comeback. People know avocados are good, olive oil is good, coconut oil is good. But I think that's beginning to happen and, and good things are happening. Um, so the summertime is a time where nature is providing uh, another diet of, of a very high carbohydrate diet, a diet that um, is fruits and vegetables. In the winter, we had the high protein, high fat diet. We had a naturally occurring uh, Atkins diet, a naturally occurring paleo diet, a naturally occurring low-carb diet, South Beach diet. Um, in the springtime, we go into a naturally occurring low-fat diet, Jenny Craig diet. In the summer, we go to a naturally occurring high-carbohydrate sort of Pritikin Dean Ornish diet. Pretty cool, right? The three best-selling diets that exist on the planet, high-protein, uh, low-fat, and high-carb, actually exist in nature for just four months of the year. So it does make sense, right? If you think about a no-fat, fat-free diet, why are we eating the same food every day of the year? Why don't we think about eating foods that are in season? So what I invite you to do is to go to my website and print out the grocery list for uh, winter and for summer and for spring and download that. Right now it's spring, so you circle all the foods on the spring grocery list that you like. This is right out of my three-season diet book and you see which ones do you like. Then you give yourself permission to eat more of those foods. That's all you have to do. Don't think about what you shouldn't eat or what you can eat. Think about what you can eat more of, right? Isn't that a switch? So every season that changes, you would switch. You go from a, eating the foods from the spring harvest, which is now, leafy greens, sprouts, berries, and cherries. Grapefruits are good too, by the way. Uh, they're early spring harvested fruit. And the cool thing about the, the diets Ayurvedically that what we're talking about is that they take foods from all over the world and you can, um, you know, instead of eating only local, you can have avocados in the winter and bananas in the winter and, and grapefruits in the spring because they have the right properties and they're harvested in those seasons in, their, in that region, but they still make sense here. So Ayurveda took sort of the global diets and pieced them into seasonal eating, which is a great gift because Eating only local can get a little boring. Um, then summertime comes along, and, and we have fruits and vegetables and, um, and a diet of cooling foods, sort of high-carbohydrate, high-energy foods, which is very, very important as well. And then that is a summer harvest, and that harvest uh, is all summer long. And then there's an end-of-summer harvest, which is October-ish, end of October, uh, for the Thanksgiving winter meal. And that is the, the harvest that takes you through the winter. So there's actually three growing seasons and three harvests, a spring harvest, a summer harvest, and an end of summer harvest for winter eating. That's why we call the book The Three Season Diet.
not a big fan of the title, but it makes sense if you want to understand what happened to the fourth season. It's one, nat- one season in nature that's dormant. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the three grocery lists, circle the foods on those lists that you like, and off you go. Now, at the end of each season, there's an accumulation of the qualities of that season. At the end of spring, you accumulate mucus. That's why you did the bitter roots and the leafy greens and you did the berries to get rid of the mucus. At the end of summer, there is an accumulation of heat. That's why the leaves turn red and the fruits ripen. It's an accumulation of heat that releases a gas called ethylene that tells all the animals that the fruits are ripening and come eat dinner served. And um, But there are also foods like apples and pomegranates and watermelons that are super cooling foods to help get rid of the excess heat. Nature has always throughout the entire summer months been trying to get rid of heat, not get that, let the body get too hot because it's hot. Now, here's an interesting thing. All summer long, the foods are being cooked on the vine outside. They're being cooked for you. You don't have to cook them inside. In fact, your digestive fire, your digestive strength in the summer is actually weaker than any other time of the year. We are here as a result from ancient human times to now because we had the ability to dissipate heat better than, say, the Neanderthals, which were, which were big, heavy, thick, stronger than us, but they didn't dissipate heat nearly as well as we did, as, as we do. And one of our tricks was that we had the ability to not have excess heat in our digestive fire during the hot time of the year, right? Makes good sense. So nature said, well, we'll fix that. We're going to cook the food on the vine for you. So all you got to do is eat the apple. It's cooked already. Don't have to worry about cooking it. Well, that would be great if we ate the foods on the vine. Most of us are eating barbecued shrimp and burgers and beer and ice cream, stuff that wasn't cooked on the vine last I checked, and therefore we have no ability to digest them. And that's the problem. So we have indigestion. We should be eating you know, pomegranates and watermelons and apples to cool our system down at the end of the summer, and we're eating all these foods that actually are firing up the digestive system, creating more heat and drying us out even more. So at the end of the summer, we dry out. And you can feel it on your skin beginning to dry out. And the antidote to that is what nature's harvesting, but we don't eat that. We should, but we don't. And that's what's on the summer grocery list, all the foods that cool you down. So circle them, eat them, enjoy them, and make a little more of an effort to eat them at the end of the summer. Be more, pay more attention at that time of the year. Come winter, it's cold and dry. Summer was hot and dry. So what accumulates is the dryness. The coldness of winter antidotes the heat of summer. Thank good for that, right? Thank God for that. But the dryness, it goes from hot and dry like a desert to cold and dry in the winter, where even the water and the rain dries up like snow and ice. So we become dry. That dryness is what happens when we age. That dryness is what happens when our intestinal tract gets dried out, produces reactive mucus, and all uh, breeding ground for bugs and, and sinus you know, mucus and colds, and all kinds of problems come from the excess mucus that happens in the winter because we didn't eat enough warm, you know, high-protein, high-fat foods in the winter, or we didn't eat enough pomegranates and apples and watermelons at the end of the summer, or we didn't enough, eat enough cooling foods all summer long, or we didn't eat enough cherries and berries at the end of spring, or greens, or bitter roots 
in the beginning of spring. So your cold and flu season may have happened not only a month or so ago, that may have started two or three seasons prior, building this momentum of imbalance that set you up for not only craving all kinds of yucky foods, but it'd be not having an immune system or an intestinal tract that can support an immune system. And that supports the microbiology, which supports the heavy lifting for every single thing that we think, say, and do, including your immune system, which is just phenomenal. So that is a sort of a fat-free diet, right? Let's eat, let's make a real special effort to get more proteins and fats in the winter. Let's make a special effort to really eat more greens in the summer. Let's make a special effort to... Um, to get more high-carbohydrate high, uh, fruits and veggies in the spring. So here are some my golden rules, and I'm going to take some questions. Um, one, no processed foods. The very best you can avoid processed foods. No cooked oils, number two. Okay, start adding a little more coconut in your diet, coconut oil in your diet. One teaspoon per meal will provide a level of satiety that you need. Um, a good quality coconut oil, by the way. A good quality olive oil. Olive oil is one of the most adulterated substances on the planet and uh, really important to get good quality olive oil that has a press date on it and you know when it was harvested. And it should taste a little bitter. It should have a bite. It shouldn't be just like, like plain and sort of oily. It should have a real taste and a real distinct flavor. Uh, that's important. Uh, if you're a fish eater, I mean, this is the big problem. We screwed fish up because all the fish have mercury in them, but good quality wild salmon, you can eat that once or twice a week at the max. They have mercury in them too, but good fish, you know, is another source. Fish oils, another good source of good DHA fats for the brain, very, very important. Um, avocados are, you know, uh, very, very important. Cooking with ghee and butter. We now know, and I've written about this a lot, which I think is fascinating, right? Ghee is made out of an oil called butyric acid. It's purified butter. And butter is named after a fatty acid called butyric acid. And our gut makes its own butyric acid. Literally, there's microbes in your gut that make its own ghee. That's how important ghee is to the body, to the cells, to the other bugs, to the, to, the, to the immune system. Major fuel supply for our immune system is butyric acid, which is ghee. So fascinating when I read that. I was like, you got to be kidding me. That in Ayurveda, we've been doing cleanses, like our Colorado cleanse, is all about taking ghee to heal and repair the intestinal tract and support the health of the gut. And many of us aren't getting those oils, and, and those bugs are going south. So one way to feed those bugs is by getting good fats, ghee being one that's so critically important, our intestinal tract decided to make its own. So that is just fascinating. Those are ways that you get good fats in your diet. Thinking about, as a goal, 50% of your plate being green or vegetables. That includes your salad. 25% starch, 25% protein is sort of the golden rule. Then you emphasize seasonally. In the winter, more proteins and fats. In the spring, more greens. In the summer, more fruits and vegetables. And you make that emphasis. And you, I think, are probably saying, well, I crave that anyway. And I couldn't agree with you more. We all do. Now you need to give yourself permission to eat that way. But if you don't, begin to add more fats, lower more carbs, and exercise more, you're never going to really feel that satiety that you need to make long trips and eat three meals a day without craving little meals all day long. And that's really the key. We've got to get ourselves to be able to be better fat burners so we can make energy last. And there's a whole program that I've written about that in our Weight Balancing eBook, which is a free download. Anybody can download it for free. It's beautiful. 
about how to uh, learn how to reset fat metabolism. That's that's based on a study I did on the the, uh, the three season diet book. So that's a great thing. Okay, I'm gonna shoot over to see who is on the phone here, and I'm gonna ask some que- uh, answer some questions here. In Park City, are you there? Um, can you hear me in Park City? Anyone? Yeah, there you. Are. I hear you. Is it uh, Newman? Hello? Yeah, I don't think we had a question. Okay. Okay, no question. Oh, question. Oh, I forgot to ask you. Well, good to meet you, and thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you. It's been really great so far, and we love the Mind Body Sport Book, too. Oh, cool. Thank you for that. Um, so if you don't have a question, I'm going to put you on mute again, okay? Sorry about that. Anybody have a question, you got to push star two. I forgot to tell you about that. Um, star two, if you have a question, and while you guys are doing that, I'm going to go to the other questions and see if we have um, any questions up here. Should um, my organic ghee be refrigerated? No, you don't have to refrigerate ghee. It's very, very stable. As long as you're eating it regularly, no problem. But if you're not going to eat it for a while, stick it in the fridge. It'll last a lot longer. But generally, if you're going through it, it's pretty stable stuff. Uh, Another question. Okay, good one. I'm confused. On one hand, our bodies evolved to survive without ample dietary fat around. On the other hand, our bile works more efficiently when we have more healthy fats and fiber? It's a great question. Here's um, what I think I know about this. Um, Hunter-gatherers were lousy hunters. When they ate a woolly mammoth, brains, liver, organ meats, that was a heck of a lot of fat in one sitting. The gallbladder has... The gallbladder has... um, bile in it that's 15 times concentrated than the bile from your liver 15 times concentrated people today get their gallbladders taken out like it's nothing right and they don't even change their diet clearly we have a gallbladder for a reason it was for us to be able to digest woolly mammoth organ meats okay at one sitting we would digest a lot now we didn't eat that every day it would take days for the body to recover and replenish all that bile and, and be able to make that bile or make enough of it. Because if you ate that much fat, a lot of that bile should be in the toilet, therefore forcing you to make new bile, okay? And that's if you have a lot of fiber, which they did. They had 100 grams of fiber per day. So they were getting rid of all that bile with all the toxins in tow, and they weren't reabsorbing their bile 94% like we do because we don't have enough fiber in our diet. They had enough fat to make new bile, so they didn't have to reuse it 17 times. I hope I'm answering your question. They, but they didn't do that every single day. I would imagine killing women with woolly mammoth was sort of like a big deal for the month. I don't know. But they definitely weren't great hunters. They didn't eat every day. So they had meat once or twice a week, maybe three times a week, something like that. Nobody really knows for sure, but it wasn't a lot. If you look at chimpanzees and mapes, they eat meat, but they do it on occasion, not like we do every single day. So I think meat can be a part of the diet from a genetic perspective, but it shouldn't be every day by no means. And, and it should be healthy grass-fed, and, and, and that kind of high fat can be consumed in one sitting, get the bile to move. And that's why we do these cleanses, because these ghee cleanses force the body to really unleash a lot of that bile and get that liver to kind of reset and restart. I think that's really important because we just don't do the woolly mammoth thing anymore. So that's important. So they were, we are wired to be able to go for months if the hunting wasn't good without the fat. So we could do it without the fat. And we would reuse the bile 17 times, you know, to help maintain daily 
you know, eat, digest the fats and detoxify and scrub the villi and all that, you know, from the regular foods that we eat that weren't super high in fat. So it wasn't the same diet every single day by any means. It was sort of, you know, a, a lot of digging, a lot of root vegetables, and once in a while you'd pick out a lot of fat, which we had the genetic ability to eat a crazy amount. And that fed the brain in a real big way. I wish I could be more precise, but I don't think anybody can because that's information that nobody really knows for sure. But that is what I think I know, and I've read a lot on this subject. So that's, I hope that helped answer your question. And please, if it doesn't, send me an email so we can we can figure that out. Um, okay, another question. Uh, your articles have helped me a lot. Thank you. My question is, I live in Trinidad, the southernmost island in the Caribbean, and I think I know what she's going to say. And I had someone who just eat, wrote me a note and said, I live in the north where it's cold all the time. How do these seasons work in these extreme places? Well, even in Trinidad and Tobago or in the north in Alaska, there are growing seasons, and people eat more. And, and the higher, more dense foods, they are harvested in the colder months. And, and you have, you, there are still ways to tie to those seasons. If you go to Florida, it's 50 degrees, 50 degrees in the winter um, and 90 degrees in the summer. Is that maybe accurate? That's 40-degree difference. Here in Colorado, it might be, you know, say 30 degrees in the daytime and, in the, you know, in the winter and 70 degrees. So that's 40 degrees, the same thing. The differences are really quite similar. It's just that in these temperate areas, you, we feel uh, a little bit more exposed to the environment. So we actually are more connected to those rhythms of nature. There are seasonal foods. There are seasonal harvests. If you can dissect or kind of filter through or navigate through all the hybridization that's taking place and eat those foods that are local. But if you go back and ask the farmers who eat locally, there are definitely foods in Trinidad that are grown locally that aren't available at other times of year, and same way in the north. It's a very real phenomena. No matter where you are, there are seasons and there are growing seasons. Um, uh, one more question here. Uh, the concern with omega-3 invokes different responses from Ayurvedic experts. On one hand, some people have been vegetarian for thousands, for thousands of years with no bad results. Um, they've been vegetarians without, uh, um, with very good functioning nervous systems. Still, some maintain that fish oils or Udo's oils is very necessary. Explain this. Great, really great question. Um, being a vegetarian, I still think is a fantastic diet. I am not, cannot, and I think those diet, any diet that you choose, whether it's meat or vegetarian, has to be an individual thing. But both require really good digestion. Vegetarian requires cooking more, preparing more, being more conscientious to be a good vegetarian is more difficult than going to Burger King. Not that that's good, but you do have to cook more, so that's really important. It's um, also important to know that um, that we make B12 in our diet for vegetarians in our intestinal tract if you have good bugs, right? But we don't have good bugs. So as a vegetarian, you're not making the B12 that you need. So we do need to make sure we supplement with good fats, whether it be coconut oil or we have vegan vitamin Ds, and there's ways to do, you know, algae-based fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids or Udo's oil. I think it's really, really important. I think that a lot of diets, whether you go to you go to India and Ayurveda, the diets, the oils that are used are processed. They're not anywhere near as, as, as rich as they once were. They're grown in soils that are depleted. 
there's no question that the oils that are being used in modern vegetarian diets are probably rancid and don't deliver anywhere near the benefits to feed the bugs. Our bugs feed on fiber and fat. And if we don't give them good fiber and fat, the bugs are going to go south and so will our health. So it's, it's debatable at this point to say that in India, people are healthy vegetarians. I don't think that's true at all. They have the highest rate of diabetes of men and, around, and anywhere on the planet. I don't they have a lot of turmeric in their diet that helps them not get certain cancers, but I wouldn't call them the, you know, the picture of health that we should model ourselves after. I do think being a vegetarian, though, can be very, very healthy. And I, and I still stand by that. But they got good fats, whether it was from coconut oil or the vegetables that they ate, they got good fats here, nuts and seeds and things like that. They definitely got good fats. Now, um, how many thousands of years did they actually, were they vegetarians? We, you know, we're talking, you know, 150,000 years as humans that were eating meats and millions of years as hunter-gatherers. So the genetics are interesting when you're speaking to look at how long we were vegetarians. And I'm not trying to make a case against vegetarians, but I love it. I think it's one of the best, healthiest diets you can eat if you do it correctly. And you can you can make up for it. That's the beautiful thing about being, you know, in this culture is we can make up for a lack of, you know, good fats that aren't available in diet with, you know, vegan oils or omega-3 supplements. So it's a very interesting time. And, um, and again, I, I hope I answered your question here. There's lots to lots to say on that diet. I'm going to go back and see if we can get some people on the phone, which is kind of fun. Uh, any questions? If anybody pushed star two, um, so in uh, Middlebury, Virginia, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes. Could you tell me the difference between ghee and coconut when it comes to the bile, please? Yeah, good question. Ghee is like the superfood. It has. Um, it has omega-3 fatty acids. It has um, 3, 6, and 9. It has um, the, all your fat-soluble vitamins. It has, um, 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 what am I thinking? It has the clostridium. It has the, uh, the, 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 um, the ghee ha- feeds the intestinal tract. It has long-chain, that's what I was thinking of, medium-chain and short-chain fatty acids. Coconut oil is a medium-chain fatty acid. So ghee will force your gallbladder to contract. That's the big deal when you cleanse. You want the gallbladder to contract. Coconut oil doesn't require the gallbladder to contract. It gets delivered as energy, as ketones, directly into the blood, directly into the brain, so it makes you, gives you satisfaction, which is why I like it as part of a meal, to give the brain the satiety so it says, oh, that was great, I'm happy, I don't need dark chocolate where ghee will take a little while for it to deliver. It helps benefit the gut. Not that coconut oil doesn't do that, but the difference, major differences from a cleansing point is that, one, the coconut oil will not contract the gallbladder nearly as well. Now, if you don't have a gallbladder, you have gallbladder issues, that can be a good alternative to use instead of the ghee, and that's the only time I recommend doing that. But generally, ghee for cleansing because it has got the long-chain fatty acids that require it to contract. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you, sir. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. In uh, Ramsey, New Jersey, are you there? Yes. Hi, Dr. John. How are you? Great. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. Um, Just a couple of quick questions. Is there a difference between eating or a benefit between eating nut butters versus the nuts themselves? Um, 
the nut butters, you know, as far as I know, the nut butters and the, uh, um, and the nuts are the same. You're just, if you take a nut butter and you grind it up, you're eating it the same way. The only difference is the nut butters have a chance to go rancid because you released a lot of those oils. So they are, that's what you have to be a little bit careful of, are the oils in the butters because you released them and now you've exposed them to light and to air. So that's the big, that's the big issue. Somebody had mentioned Udo's oil. Udo Erasmus has some oils that are, that are really quite phenomenal and, and they never see the light of day. They're in a dark bottle and because they are so, so precious and so vulnerable to light. So that's why uh, that would be the difference. But in terms of nutritional value, I don't think so. I don't think there's any, much difference. Okay, and what is the be- when is the best time to eat fruit? I know you're not supposed to start your day out with sugar. Protein is a better option. But what would be the best time to have fruits now that I want to have fruits because it's cutting towards the season to have berries and cherries? Yeah, right. So I'm going to mute you while I answer that question. Um, so this is a question that um, is probably another hour-long discussion, really. Um, but simply put, fruits Ayurvedically are to be eaten alone. Why? Because they have a lot of fructose. Why? Fructose is harder to digest, and therefore it burns differently than regular sucrose does. So two things. When you eat fruits with other foods, it, 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 the fruits' sugars ferment in your stomach because they burn really quickly, but the rest of the foods is hanging out in your stomach trying to be digested. So it creates gas and bloating, and that's the problem. Plus the fact that when you have when you're having fruit, the fructose burns very slow in terms of delivering energy, and the, the and um, therefore can create a lot of digestive issues because things are digesting at different speeds. So Ayurvedically, they said eat fruit alone. Now, that would mean if you were you know, a hunter-gatherer and you saw an apple tree and it was ripe, you'd pig out on it and you would probably eat only fruits. If you were walking and saw blueberry bushes, you would eat nothing but blueberries for a day and eat them alone. It kind of makes sense. But um, eating them with other foods, the body will prefer to digest. If you're eating blueberries on your granola, for example, your body's going to burn the sugar in the granola for energy and it's going to store the fructose as fat because you overshot your energy runway. There's only, your body's going to say, I don't need the fructose for fuel right now. If I had nothing but fruit, I'll, eat, I'll burn that as fuel. But if I have fruit and carbs together or starches together, I'm just going to burn the starch as fuel because it's easy and I'm going to store the fructose as fat. That's the real reason because they burn at separate times. So if you put you know, you know, jelly on your peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the jelly is going to get stored as fat and the peanut butter or the bread sugar will be burned as fuel, if that makes any sense. So it's a very tricky question. But you can but the idea is if you know having grapefruits for breakfast in the spring, if you have good blood sugar, should be plenty to get you to lunch. But that's our problem, right? We don't we don't make energy last unless we pig out on so much carbs we don't feel satisfied. So we have a little work to do to re scrub our digestive system so we can assimilate, absorb and get energy from from foods that are uh, not so so dense and rich in carbs that pound away at our nervous system and give us that sense of satiety. We should be able to get satiety from a very small amount of fruits. A couple of grapefruits should do the trick. Really, they should. And that is a signpost of wonderful blood sugar stability, which again is another topic. One last question from um, New York City. Are you there? Yes, hi. Hi. Um, I love I love the talk. It's absolutely fabulous. And um, I have two questions, actually. Um, one is with the ghee. Is it better to um, digest it um, 
cooked with different foods or is it better to digest it, um, I guess, not recooked, raw, maybe on a piece of sprouted bread? Well, that's the cool thing about ghee and coconut oil. Thank you for bringing it up because I didn't talk about that. Is both ghee and coconut oil are, are heat tolerant, so they handle um, they handle the ability to um, handle the ability to be cooked very very well. So it doesn't matter. You can cook ghee, have it raw, put it on your bread. You can do whatever you like with it. Same with coconut oil. You can cook with it. You can put it on your food. It doesn't really matter. So um, that's the that's the um, the nature of that, which is which is great. Great. And my my second question is, um, I just started um, making green, I guess, smoothies with the Vita mixer, and um, we use leafy greens and we mix fruit into it. It's a bit difficult for my husband to just drink the leafy green smoothies um, because it's mixed with leafy greens, not vegetables, but leafy greens. Um, is it okay to eat the fruit via smoothie way with the leafy greens? Um, no. <laughs> uh, um, I, wish, I wish I could say, yeah, that will solve the problem and make everybody happy to <laughs> put the greens and their fruits in together. It won't, you know, it, you know, it's interesting. It would be great to experiment for yourself. Have a bunch of fruit with your green mint drink and drink it and see how you feel, any gas or bloating, and do it without, and then, and then see how you feel. And that's really the interesting thing is to do, the, do it yourself. I've done that, and I definitely feel, I definitely feel a difference. Um, Vitamixes are great but they're not to replace chewing vegetables. We are genetically wired to chew, and chewing increases blood to the brain. It makes people smarter. Kids here in Colorado are told to chew gum before they take, while they're taking standardized tests because it makes them smarter. We have studies to back that chewing is good for us. And everything we do, we blend, we drink. We want to make sure that we have, those are great for supplemental micronutrient drinks to drink them down, but not huge 20-ounce things that replace a meal. Please don't replace meals with drinking things. Chewing is a genetic action that we need to keep this brain moving for us and keep us smart. So don't replace it. Now, as a micronutrient drink, it's fine. Play with whether you put fruits in there or not, but generally speaking, fruits with the greens are going to digest at different times. You will have, um, you will, you will, you will, they will ferment in your gut a little bit more, create more gas. But experiment with that and see. And these are, by, by the way, these are, what I call fine points, not sticky points. If you do that, I'm not going to lose any sleep. Blood sugar may be a bigger issue than whether fruit's good for you or bad for you. Blood sugar is a whole other issue, and that you determine based on your morning blood sugar numbers. And if they're below 85, you know, eat as much fruit as you want. You know, you're doing great. Uh, if your numbers start creeping up towards 100, you got to start looking at the fruit intake and how your and, and your digestive efficiency. And that we'll do another talk and a whole other lecture on that, which would be really fun to do and go into that into detail. Guys, I'm sorry I went over for a lot of you. Uh, I hope this was informative. I hope you have a great spring. Download that ebook. That uh, that not the ebook, but the ebook too. But download the spring grocery list and and eat more of what you like on that list. Thanks for listening. Talk to you guys again. Thank you.